Good evening. <clears throat> oh, come on. Good evening. Ah, there you are. It's good to hear you and good to see you all today. We are going to be in Luke chapter 23 <clears throat> over the next couple of minutes. I wonder what you think about death. Now, most of us, being normal humans, don't want to think about death. However, the most reliable statistic in human history is still that one out of every one human beings die. So what do you think about death? It's odd that in, in time, whether a good man or woman dies, or whether a bad man or woman dies, our reaction tends to be kind of the same. When someone we know and love, or someone in history who we knew and loved was a good person and did many good things, we regret that they're gone. We wish they could have been here for longer. When a bad man or bad woman dies, initially there's rejoicing. Yes, I can see that on your face. When Mussolini, the dictator of Italy, was killed by the mobs in the early 1940s, they rejoiced and threw a party. But in a little while, that turned into regret. And they wished they hadn't done that. When Ceausescu in the 80s, from Romania, the dictator of Romania, did the same thing, he was dragged into the streets and killed, initially there was rejoicing. And then there was kind of regret. But the death of Jesus Christ is peculiar in that it is met with rejoicing and then reverence. So how is this death good? How is it that this death that Christ crucified produces good things? That's what I'm hoping we consider over our time together in the chapter that we are about to look at, specifically from verse 32 to 49, which was very ably read already. But I'd want us just to read from verse 39 to 43, and I will pray for us, and we will jump in. Luke chapter 23, from verse 39. One of the criminals who are, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what we do not know, would you please teach us through your word? What we do not have, would you please give us through your word? And what we are not, would you please make us through your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
If you're looking for a large heading to think about what we're going to be discussing, especially from verse 32 to 49, it is Christ crucified. That's the center, not just of this text, but really of the whole Bible, in a sense. It is Christ crucified. And I'd hope that you and I see over the next few minutes, if you're looking for mental handles to understand how we will be looking at Christ crucified, is number one, that Christ is crucified with and for criminals. Number two, that Christ convicts sinners. And lastly, that Christ calls out in confidence. Christ crucified, Christ convicts, Christ calls out. Look at verse 32 to 33 again. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they, came to, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now it's interesting that the authors of the Gospels don't actually pay a lot of attention to the actual act of crucifixion. They spend most of their time on the Christ being crucified. Their obsession, if you will, is not to get us looking at the whipping and the bones, be, rather the skin being torn and the blood gushing out and the nails being driven, though all of that is obviously true and obviously frightful. Their focus is look at Christ who is crucified. He's crucified with these two other criminals. Now, what's interesting is before this point in the story, four different times Pilate had said, this man is innocent. And over a separate occasion, Herod had said, this man is innocent. It's almost like these criminals are being thrown into the fray to muddy the waters. As though they want us to go, yeah, if Jesus is being crucified with those guys, he must be guilty of something. But both Pilate and Herod, and later everyone else, would recognize, no, this, this man is innocent. Now it's interesting that not only Pilate but Herod said, that Jesus was innocent. If anyone had a reason to want Jesus dead, it would be Herod, wouldn't it? Herod being the fake king of the Jews, while Jesus was living proof that Herod is a fake. <laughs> if anyone would want that guy dead, it would be Herod. Literally, Jesus, by line of descent, was the legitimate king of the Jews. Herod was this imposed king of the Jews. But not even Herod could say he's guilty. Pilate tried getting rid of him, tried scourging him, getting him flogged, everything to get him off his hands. The fact of the matter is, no, this king was innocent. So why is it that he is being crucified along with criminals? And Luke goes out of his way to say that he was crucified along with criminals at this place called the skull, or in the Aramaic language, Golgotha. Well, that's because God had said 750 years before this event, event, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, God had determined that his son, according to Isaiah 53, the righteous servant, would die along with sinners, would be crucified, would be counted with criminals. Here is Isaiah 53, 12. God speaking through Isaiah says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And what would he do as he's being counted and treated like any other common, or in this case, vile criminal? He would make intercession for the transgressors, which is exactly what we see him do in the next verse. In verse 35, rather in verse 34, and Jesus said, as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first words out of Jesus' mouth while he is being crucified <laughs> is a prayer for sinners, including the very ones there sinning against him. A prayer for sinners as nails are driven through his hands and feet after having endured a scourging. Now, to be clear, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he's not sweeping the sin under the rug. Like, yeah, I know they're doing this, it doesn't matter, let, just, let bygones be bygones, it's all good, we're good. That's not what's happening there. He's recognizing there is a real sin being done right now. These are real sinners who deserve real wrath and real punishment and eternal justice for they have sinned against an eternal God. But his prayer, his plea, is that they would be forgiven. Because sin is ultimately an affront against God. Forgiveness ultimately must come from God. Though he should be calling out for their justice, he actually calls out for mercy. An example of this from recent history, well, more recent history, of this kind of prayerful forgiveness is from the story of Moses Hall from Jamaica. Moses Hall's courage, which was fueled by prayer, is worth observing. Moses Hall was an African-Jamaican pastor in Jamaica in the early 1800s. And the story is told this way. Some African Christians who are enslaved in Jamaica were gathering regularly to pray, even though such prayer meetings were outlawed by their masters. This is an account of one occasion. Determined to put an end to slave meetings in Jamaica, some slave owners broke up a prayer meeting being led by a slave named David, one of Moses Hall's assistants. They seized David, murdered him, cut off his head, and placed it on a pole in the center of the village as a warning to other slaves. Eerily like crucifying Jesus as a public warning, they dragged Moses Hall up to the grisly object, and they said, Now Moses Hall, whose head is that? The leader of the murderers asked. David's, Moses replied. Do you know why he's up there? For praying, sir, said Moses. No more of your prayer meetings, he said. If we catch you at it, we shall serve you the way we served David. As the crowd watched, Moses Hall knelt beside the pole and said, Let us pray. The other African Christians gathered around him and knelt with him and prayed for the salvation of David's murderers. For those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, that means we need to be forgiving like Jesus Christ. We need to be a people who are marked by forgiveness, a people who are marked by mercy, a people known for forgiving even our enemies. For us who have been forgiven much, have been empowered by Christ to forgive much. Now that means if you're 
the jilted lover in the room whose boyfriend left you for your best friend and married them. That means we forgive much. That means if you're the betrayed spouse, that means we forgive much. That means if you're the offended employee whose employer feels more like a slave master, we forgive much. That means if you're a child living under the tyrannical, authoritarian leadership of mother and father, we forgive much. That means if you're a parent disrespected by a bratish, brutish child, we forgive much. Again, forgiveness here doesn't mean let's just sweep the thing under the rug and act like it never happened. We're good, we're good, it's fine. You don't need a PhD in psychology to know that if every time offense happens and yelling and discord and we just sweep the thing under the rug, that will produce unhealthy relationships and an unhealthy family and certainly an unhealthy spiritual community. Forgiveness does mean that where offense has been committed, we don't hold the offense against the person, that we release them to Christ we refuse to rehearse our resentment toward them and pray that the Lord will cause them to have faith and repentance to reconcile with us. I forgive you also doesn't mean that I say the words, but in my heart I'm really hoping a piano falls on you. Because really that means I do not forgive you. I forgive you means we do what Christ did here. Release them to the Father, commend them to the Father in the hope of reconciliation. For those of us who are followers of Christ, that means in a church, forgiveness means my posture is permanently one that is willing to forgive you, and your posture or my posture, if I'm the offending party, is one that is permanently bent toward asking for forgiveness, so that I ask you for forgiveness and you forgive me and the health of this thing called a church is seen in how we forgive one another like Christ. For us, forgiveness is not an added optional. We are commanded in Scripture, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Uh, to my friends who are here, who you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus does offer full, true, eternal forgiveness, but... There can be no forgiveness without repentance. There can be no way for God to forgive you unless you turn away from your sin, trust in him, and come to him. He is not going to turn a blind eye. He's not going to just sweep it under the rug. And maybe you're here and you think you're a Christian. In fact, part of what you're here to do is fulfill your biannual commitment to Christ. I come once during Easter and once during Christmas, and we're good. But friend, you've misunderstood what it means to be forgiven by God. It's not in ritual and religion. It is in a turning away from sin, in a repentance and trusting in Him, as I hope you're about to see over the next few minutes. Forgiveness is at the center of the cross, at the center of the Christian, and at the center of a church. Interestingly, Jesus is praying for those who are killing them, killing him rather, but as he's praying for them, they're using him for sport. Look at chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
and they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, uh, we are not entirely sure what casting lots was like, but it was basically like a form of gambling, if you will. You'd either throw stones or throw sticks, and it would spell something or say something, and that, that would determine who should get said garments that were being torn over. Now, that sounds like a line that Luke just kind of threw in there, but think about this. There's a dying man on a cross, and these guys are using his clothes for entertainment. There's a dying man on the cross, and these clothes, by the way, might not actually be worth that much. It's not like they bid for his clothes or they, they fought for his clothes. They were just like, yeah, who's going to take this thing? You. And threw it away while he's watching. Why would these people who don't know Jesus from a loaf of bread, they don't have any stakes in this death, why treat him with such contempt before and during his crucifixion? Well, these Roman soldiers were unwittingly fumbling into fulfilling prophecy. This is the apex of history. The death of Christ is the apex of history. God who is in charge of everything doesn't leave anything to chance, not even garments being torn, which is why Psalm 22, that starts out with saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, says this, for dogs have encompassed me. A company of evil doers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This is being written before crucifixion was invented. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Listen, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. They didn't realize it. But everything they did was a fulfillment of what God had already decided to do to save his own. And one of the ways that we know Jesus is actually the true Messiah and not a fraud is he couldn't have orchestrated that. He couldn't have told the soldiers, hey, divide my garments. No, they did this and fumbled into fulfilling prophecy. And then next, look at these four characters around the cross. The watching crowds, the scoffing rulers, the mocking soldier, and the railing criminals. Let's start with the watching crowds in verse 35. And the people stood by watching. Now, at first glance, you're like, well, at least they're better than the soldiers. They're not mocking, right? They're just watching. Yeah, it is a slightly better thing to do than mocking him. But at second glance, you have to ask, why are they just watching? In that crowd are people whose diseases Jesus had healed. In that crowd are people whose dead Jesus had raised. In that crowd are people who are desperate, and Jesus welcomed them. People who are despised, and Jesus took them in. How are they now just watching? It is because they're rejecting him. They're rejecting him quietly, but make no mistake, they are rejecting him. They might not be doing it verbally or violently, but they are rejecting him. He has been rejected by the very crowds he helped. Then look at the scoffing rulers. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You know, it's interesting, these rulers 
were the guys who knew the Bible better than anyone else in Israel. They had memorized it backwards and forwards. They knew it all, right? In fact, in fact that's um, uh, the thing that marks them out. They know the law. That's why they're the rulers. What is weird is they kept missing the whole point of the Bible. They kept missing things they should have known, things they knew offhand, like Isaiah 53, verse 6 to 8, which explains why Jesus was not going to save himself. These self-styled rulers, who are in reality illegitimate rulers, who wanted power for themselves and were threatened that Jesus was taking away their power, missed the fact that the Messiah didn't come to save himself. He didn't need saving. He came to save others. Or as Isaiah 53, 6 to 8 puts it, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. For them to say, let him save himself, would have meant he saves no one else. For them to say, if he's a Christ, the chosen one, he should save himself. No, because he was the Christ, because he was the chosen one, he chose to save others and not himself. That was the whole point. The crowds were watching, the rulers were scoffing, and the Roman soldiers were mocking. You know, it's, it's, you know there's a problem when the Jews and the Romans finally agree on something. That's a bad sign. They had nothing to agree about. One group believed in one God. The other group believed in many gods. One group lived a moral life. The other group lived an immoral life. One group lived a legalistic life. The other group lived a liberal, licentious life. They have nothing in common. One group was oppressed, and the other group was the oppressor. When they're agreeing, you know there's a problem. But when it comes to the rejection of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile all agreed. And they start mocking him. In other words, they laughed at this dying man as he's dying and treat him with contempt. And scripture says they offered him sour wine. Look there in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, kind of like the rulers, if you are the Christ, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, some people have said the reason they offered him sour wine is because they felt bad for him and wanted to alleviate his suffering. I'm not particularly convinced by that argument. Because just before they offer him this sour wine, they're mocking him. They're laughing at his dying and his bleeding. People who take pleasure at seeing suffering don't generally try and alleviate suffering. The reason I believe they're giving him this sour wine is not to alleviate his suffering, but to extend it so that they may enjoy seeing more of Jesus' suffering. But once again, they fumbled into fulfilling prophecy. They thought they were in charge, and in the background, you just see God kind of silently going, Tick, you just fulfilled it. They fulfilled the words of Psalm 69, verse 4 and 21. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. They gave me poison for food, and for thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And then they put up this mocking sign. 
And they put it up, we know this from the other Gospels, in Greek, which was the common language spoken. They put it up in Latin, which was the legal language. They put it up in Aramaic, which was the spoken language. And the sign said, this is the king of the Jews. They meant to mock him. Because in their minds, being good Romans, they're thinking, this? <laughs> this guy? This bleeding, pitiful guy is your king? This guy? No wonder you Jews are the way you are. This guy who can't even carry his own cross. This is your king? Ah. But, in the words of Matthew 1, this is Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of the king, descendant of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. And they would soon realize that he'd be king of kings. And lastly, we have the railing criminal. Look there with me in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, this criminal who had been condemned to death had literally a few hours to live, right? Of all the things he could have spent his time doing, he decides... Let me spend the little breath I have left to rail against Jesus. By the way, the word used there for railed against him is actually the word for blasphemed. He blasphemed Jesus with the little time he had left. Now you have to ask, why would all four characters, some of them who don't even care about the Jewish religious system or a Jewish man claiming to be the Messiah or the king, why would they hate so much? Answer, same. They are fumbling into fulfilling prophecy. God had determined this is how he would bring salvation. Psalm 22, verse 6 to 7, that I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This was a cooperative of the corrupt. So total was their depravity that even when they were formerly enemies, they now became friends to reject, revile, and extinguish Christ. For those of you who are here and you might not know Jesus Christ or do not know Jesus Christ, I know a part of you thinks, I'm just not that bad a person. And in your defense, you're probably a really nice person. But I'm pretty sure you're one of these characters. You're rejecting Christ by watching, scoffing, or mocking. Yours is the words of the song we just sang. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And you're thinking, I've never, I respect Christ. I don't mock him. I never speak ill of him. I'm, dude, I'm here on a Friday in the Easter service. What more do you want from me? Well, friend, I think you're watching. I think you're watching because though you'd never speak ill of Christ, and I wouldn't be and we wouldn't be loving if we didn't tell you this, Scripture says, Jesus particularly in Mark 8, 34 said, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Not just 
observe and watch Jesus do that and say, wow, that's so cool that he's a good savior. You like Christ, but you would never say Christ rules your life. You engage somewhat with Christ, but you are not owned by Christ. Maybe you're scoffing. Maybe for you, you think this is one big joke. And yeah, okay, Jesus is a great teacher, one of many great teachers. Allow me to respond to you in the words of C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Friend, I understand you if you mock and scoff. Maybe not publicly, but I understand you. Because it kind of seems ridiculous that a king would be crucified. And somehow that would save humanity. If that's you, hold on just a little bit. Because you're about to see how he did that for you. And maybe you're mocking. You feel like your life has been hard and God's not for real. Well, behold the man dying upon the cross. Greater injustice has never been committed to anyone than him. His life was far harder than yours. But he'd entrust his life to the one worth entrusting it to. He was crucified for sinners, but he was not only crucified for sinners and with sinners, now look at how he convicts sinners. Verse 40, right after one criminal has rebuked him, look at the other criminal. But the other rebuked him, rather after one criminal has railed against Jesus, look at the other criminal rebuke him. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God, <laughs> since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This dying criminal may have actually been part of the scoffers and the mockers might have been lobbying verbal grenades at Jesus along with anyone, but at some point, he realized, I might be alone in this, but this guy is the king. In fact, he tells his friend, do you not fear the Lord? Which is how you expressed faith in the Old Testament. That was the heart of faith in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This dying criminal understood, I need to fear this Jesus that's right here. Essentially, he was speaking of Jesus as God. Do you, criminal, not fear God? To fear God is to recognize him as God, to revere him, believe in him, want him. And the criminal speaks of Jesus as that. He recognizes that his own condemnation is just. 
You know, because of the song, there is a fountain filled in blood, we, we've, and, and other historical reasons, we tend to call this criminal the dying thief upon the cross, right? Well, he might have been a thief, but generally theft is not the kind of thing that gets you executed. I think he was a lot worse than a thief. I think the kind of stuff he had done actually warranted execution. The only innocent person in this execution is Jesus. This vile criminal recognizes that the wages of his sin is death, not just literally, but he recognizes what he deserves from God is eternal death. And he looks to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Another statement of faith. And remember here is not just a cerebral action, like, oh, I remember there was a guy called John who I used to know. No. Remember here is akin to Psalm 106. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Remember me, Jesus, the criminal says, when you come into your kingdom. He knows that we are both going to be dead at the end of this. So what does he mean when you come into your kingdom? He's looking to a kingdom yet to come, an eternal kingdom. Somehow, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see what no one else could see, that this is the king and he will come back in his kingdom with an eternal judgment. So he throws himself upon the mercy of the king. And what's the king's response? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Same way he told the people listening in Luke 4, today, Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing by me. Same way he told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. He told the dying criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. You're helpless, hopeless. You can't do anything. You're quite literally hanging on a cross. You've done nothing to get to heaven. Today I will bring you to paradise. There was a fellow called Rick Hoyt who ran 32 Boston Marathons. The Boston Marathon, by definition, is not short and it's not easy. But Rick Hoyt ran 32 of them and not just started, he actually finished all 32 races. The thing about Rick Hoyt, though, is Rick Hoyt was a paraplegic. He couldn't run, couldn't walk, was born with cerebral palsy, didn't, couldn't even crawl. So how did Rick Hoyt run 32 Boston Marathons again? Ah. His father, Dick Hoyt, would put his son, Rick Hoyt, on a wheelchair and run every mile of the Boston Marathon with him. And he finished every single one of those 32 Boston Marathons. Now, did Rick Hoyt finish those Boston Marathons? Yes. Did he do it because he was such an amazing Kenyan runner? Not a chance. The dying thief didn't get to paradise because he did a bunch of good things. The dying thief had no hope outside Jesus Christ dying for him and quite literally lifting him into heaven. What is your hope, dear sinner? It is not in what you do. What is your hope that you're a really good mom or dad? What is your hope that you read the Bible every day? No. Your hope, like the dying criminal, is to throw yourself upon the mercy of God and say, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. 
I turn away from my sin. I trust in you. Save me. And what is the king's response? Today, you will be with me in paradise. And for those of us who know Christ, we are not in a different category. Like we were saved by this Christ, by his grace, by his work, by his effort. But now, let's sustain ourselves by our good works. That's not how it works. No, because we have been saved, we want to do the good works. Because we have been saved, we are now indwelt by a spirit that makes us want to do the very things we once despised. Because Christ is in us, in view of all Christ has done for us, we live confidently on the grace that he supplies. This is the great hope of the believer. And lastly, Christ calls out. We've seen Christ crucified. He's brought there with the criminals. We've seen Christ convicting this man. And lastly, look at how this story ends. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Now, people have many theories about how it became dark, was there an eclipse, I'm not particularly convinced of that, partly because this was the time of the Passover, and generally that's the time of the full moon, but eclipses happen in the time of the new moon, yes, for those of you who aren't listening in high school physics, that's actually when eclipses happen. I'm not convinced that it was an eclipse. Whatever it is, quite frankly, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, its timing is not accidental. It is not accidental that as the light of the world is being slain, darkness covers the world. It is not accidental that in the world's darkest hour, when they were killing the only truly innocent man, when they were putting to death the Son of God, it is not accidental that darkness covers the world. It is a picture of God's judgment on Israel, those he came to save, yet was rejected by. And they are now going to be covered in darkness, for they have extinguished their light, the light of the world. At that same hour, Scripture says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There were two curtains, and I think Luke means the inner curtain that led to the innermost holy of holies. That curtain is torn in two, allowing all to have access to God himself. And what does that do? That means a couple of things. That means, number one, the whole Old Testament priesthood is done because the whole point of having Old Testament priests is they would be the ones to go into the Holy of Holies. They would be the ones to make atonement for sin. And the rest of us would hope that guy doesn't die while he's in there. But now, a sacrifice is being made that tears the curtain. An atonement for sin is being made that allows all to have access to the Holy of Holies. The Old Testament priesthood is done. But secondly, that also means the whole sacrificial system is done. And it's done because it has finally been fulfilled by this Jesus. And we'll come back to that. But thirdly, it means the existence of a temple and the value of a temple is also done. The whole point of the temple was to ensure that access to the Holy of Holies happens rightly. But if that access has now been granted to all then Jesus was right, 
destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The temple is no longer a physical stone structure. He is the temple. As Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 says, he is the curtain. It is through him that we have access to God Almighty in the Holy of Holies. And then scripture says, not only was the curtain torn into, verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Right there you have the apex of history. This is the reason the whole earth exists. That the Son of God may die. Note that he calls out to his father. He's not dying unsure. He's not dying, this, this, oh, I hope this ends well. No, he calls confidently to his father, saying, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I know who I belong to. I know how this ends. Regardless of who doesn't, I know my father. I know how this ends. This son would call out to his father, much like a story all the way back in Genesis chapter 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac and how it worked then is God had told Abraham, take your son, your one and only son whom you love and take him to a range of mountains which I shall show you. Now, a range of mountains called Mount Moriah and on that range of mountains, sacrifice your son. Put wood on his back, march him up that mountain, take a knife and kill him. But before Abraham could do that, after having bound the, the, the son to wood, before he could plant the knife, a ram from God came as a substitute for the son. One of the things the son said in that story is, my father, I see the fire, I see the knife, where's the, the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide Thousands of years later, possibly on that same range of mountains, a different father would march his son up a place called the skull. A different father would bind his son onto wood because scripture says in Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him. For this son, a ram from God, came as a substitute. This son was the lamb of God who was the substitute. This son was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this son would commit himself to the Father dying on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in him. So that in time, they too would be able to say, God, you are my Father and in death commit themselves fully to God. The same way in life they committed themselves to God through his son, Jesus Christ. So, so let me press in on you and myself a little bit. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, tell me, how confident do you and I live? When you and I wake up every morning, is our confidence in the fact that God's got me covered? And if I die today, I can confidently say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If I die, fine. If I live, fine. If I get fired, fine. 
if I get kicked out, whatever it is, I'm in your hands. Because that was the whole point of having this confidence. That we, like Jesus, would be able to live in confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ. That we are loved by the Father, saved by the Son, indwelt by the Spirit. That is the basis of our confidence. For those of us who you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the whole reason he's dying. We know that because we were the whole reason he was dying. For those of us who would turn away from our sin and trust in him, and let me call you to that even now, if you have not done that, behold the man upon the cross, your sin upon his shoulders, the innocent put to death for the guilty. For those of us who are Christians, once again, this should fuel our evangelism. This should fuel the fact that we know Jesus saves. And because we know he saves, we can confidently tell others and let the chips fall where they may. This means we want them to have the same confidence and trust and eternal hope that we have. This means that our prayers are prayers of confidence. This means that we make very strange decisions. Like, I'm going to work there because there's a church that has been planted there and those guys need to hear about this guy. That means our lives don't make sense outside the cross. Do you see? So as we close, three questions I have for you. Jesus Christ was crucified and dead and buried. That is a fact. He died. Here's the question. How will you respond to that? No other event in your life matters more than this one. The reason you were born is so that you may respond to the death of Christ. For when you die, you're going to be saying one of two things. Welcome me into your kingdom because I trusted you. Or you will be hearing, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Christ was crucified. How will you respond? Here's, here's the second question. Is Christ convicting you right now? My friend who doesn't know Jesus. Scripture says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn, trust, for today is the day of your salvation. And for believers, if you came with a friend or know a friend here or are seated next to a friend, you might as well just tell them confidently, oh, by the way, I brought you here so that you may hear the gospel. They already know it. There's no need to act. They know why you brought them here. You might as well tell them, I cannot imagine anything better than spending the rest of my eternal life with you. But I can't do that for you. Jesus did that for you. If you trust him with your life. And lastly, for those of us who are believers, will we live so confidently in our God who sent his son to die for us, knowing that whether we live or die, we belong to him, that we can confidently say, I'm his anyway. Tomorrow might be my last day and that's fine. 90 years from now might be my last day and that's fine. Whatever it is, I will live confidently each day for his glory and the salvation of the nations through his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us 
your love and your power and your glory and your grace that would save sinners like us. Grant, O oh Lord, that everyone here would hear a better sermon than the one that was just preached. That they would hear your spirit trail along in their hearts, convicting them of the truths of your word, turning us away from sin that we may trust in you and making us more like you. For your glory we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.